0: It is indeed a strange world in which we live. It seems that language is a constant problem for us. For instance, today it has just started snowing in Richmond, Virginia, where our broadcast will emanate from, which reminds me of the passage of Scripture there in the book of Isaiah, as the rain that falls in the snow from heaven and waters the earth and it brings forth fruit after its kind so is my word that comes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void, but it will prosper in that which wish I sent it. Well, is God's word snow? Is God's word water? And then what about the words of the Apostle Paul when he's speaking to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about washing our wives with the water of the word? Is the word water? Can you really wash your wife with the word? How are we supposed to understand the word of God? That's what we want to talk about here today on Viewpoint. How are we supposed to understand the word of God? The Bible tells us that we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Obviously, if we can rightly divide the word of truth, we can wrongly divide the word of truth. Would anybody intentionally and wrongly divide the word of truth? Well, there would be some who would do that. They have nefarious ends. They have deceptive purposes. They're seducers. Well, the Bible walks, uh, talks about those that kind of person here in these end times, doesn't it? But then the majority of us are not out there wanting to intentionally misrepresent, misunderstand, misinterpret the Word of God. But we do anyway. Why do we do that? What is the problem? Maybe one of the problems is that we're just not, into stone, not studying to show ourselves approved unto God as a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Therefore, we should be ashamed because we don't study to show ourselves approved unto God. On the other hand, there are many who do study to show themselves approved unto God that still have a problem with rightly dividing the word of truth. One of the problems there is what I call soundbite Christianity. Soundbite Christianity. Some might even call it proof-texting theology. So today we want to talk about soundbite Christianity, how proof-texting theology perverts truth. In other words, in declaring the Word of God, we can actually pervert the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Because we don't rightly apply and discern the Word of Truth. How many times have you spoken to your wife or to your husband or someone else and you said something and they turned up their, they twitched their eye at you? Did you really say that? Is that what you really meant? But they took you at your word. But that isn't what you meant at all. They took you at your specific word at that moment in time. But that isn't what you meant at all. Is it possible that there are things in the Bible that God intended to say what he intended them to say, but we have decided for whatever reason to interpret them otherwise? One of the reasons and ways that we do that, the most simple way that we do that is with what I call sound bite Christianity. And we want to talk about that. As we progress on to the program today. So I thank you for joining us. It's conversation as always with ever increasing conviction. Talk that transforms. In this is one of those situations where you could say that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Whether you realize it or not, the Christian world is full of landmines. In order to be able to speak to God's people, as we do here on this program, it is necessary to understand where most of those landmines are laid. And I tell you, they're out there. They're everywhere. It is almost impossible to do a program without somebody quibbling about a word that was said, or way it was said, or the application with which it was given. One of the reasons for that is this servant here is not God. I'm an imperfect servant attempting to translate the Word of God with its implications and its applications so that it is not missed just in the mere reading of the Word. On the other hand there are those who are receiving what is said here on this program And they also are not not perfect persons. In fact, many of them, just like everywhere else in the world, have not studied to show themselves approved unto God as a workman that needs not to be ashamed. Many others have actually studied, but the nature of their study and the persons with which they have studies have actually skewed the import of the very words that they're supposed to be studying. Do you see how it is possible to end up in such immense confusion that there literally are word wars that go on among Christians in the body of Christ? There are word wars that go on among pastors. We like to look at our nation as a whole and see how Unbelievably divided we are. But the reality is, we're grossly divided within the professing body of Christ. And that's not a good thing. That is not a good thing. And then, in order to express our various viewpoints, we end up doing so in a very worldly way, accusing one another, actually maligning using vitriolic language, just go to the internet, my friends, and watch how Christians respond to what other people have said. Just follow it, and you'll see the malignant nature of those who are professing to be the most profound deserters of truth, and yet they have malignant attitudes and minds and hearts, perhaps. Can you see how difficult it is to discuss issues of truth and their application? It is a profound challenge. Jesus himself had that kind of challenge with the religious leaders of his day. They argued with him intensely, so much so that they actually called for his crucifixion. That's how bitter they were about his words. They did the same thing with the Apostles. They did the same with the Apostle Paul, and they're doing the same today. Soundbite Christianity, what does that look like? Are we engaged in parsing participles and missing the whole truth that would make us free? Let's talk about it. Let's reason together today. Judas went out and hanged himself. That's what Matthew chapter 27 verse 5 says. And then it says, go thou and do likewise. Are you still living? Why did you not do what the Bible said? If Judas went out and hanged himself, you should have gone out and done likewise. Have you betrayed the Lord in some way? Absolutely you have. Because you're not perfect. You're a sinner saved by grace. Why did you not go out and hang yourself? Because somehow you knew that that wasn't the intent, the full intent of what Jesus was saying there in Matthew 27, verse 5. How about John 9, 6, where it tells us about how a blind man came to Jesus and Jesus spit on the ground made clay of the spittle, and put it on his eyes and healed him. Okay? Some would say, okay, well, that's what the Bible says, so that's what we should do. So they go around creating the ministry of spitting to heal blindness. Now, there aren't too many that have done that because they realize how unbelievably ridiculous that would look unless God particularly called you to do that, you might actually get in grave trouble, even legally, for doing that. But how about this? The Bible calls the children of Israel stiff-necked people over and over and over again. And I do mean over and over again, from the time they came out of Egypt all the way through to the time of Christ. Stiff-necked people. So the question that I have is, if these are stiff-necked people and I have a stiff neck, you know what I'm more prone to do? Go to the chiropractor. So was the Bible calling the Jewish people to go to a chiropractor or massage therapist in order to correct their stiff necks? No. The term stiff-necked was metaphorical to speak about the condition of their minds and their hearts, to talk about how prideful they were. They were stiff-necked people. Are you beginning to see where I'm going with this? See, it's very easy for us to use sound bites and actual quotes from the Bible and yet be wrong yet be wrong in our application or the intended implication of the statements that were made. In this country, we have many idioms in our speech. Some of them, in in fact, so many of the idioms of our speech are absolutely ridiculous to someone from another country. They make absolutely no sense whatsoever. So, When somebody comes from another country and does not understand those idioms and we speak and we're speaking seriously and we use one of those idioms, they think we're an idiot. Or they can completely misunderstand what we say. How many times have we heard of a person who would go to another country thinking that they had prepared themselves, maybe they uh, uh, followed the Babel uh, program or some other kind of program, and may they use the computer to try to translate certain basic uh, communication, and they said something in the foreign country that they thought was absolutely correct, and the person starts laughing at them, or maybe is totally offended. Why would that happen? Because the interpretation of what you said was not correct. In fact, the person didn't even understand what you were trying to communicate because you used the wrong words in the wrong context. This is part of our problem with understanding the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is not intended to be understood in the sense of, shall we say, parsing participles. You say, participles, what's that? Well, if you went to school, you should have known what participles were. You were supposed to be taught those in the eighth grade, and then again sometime in high school, and then again in college. So I want to read to you just a little excerpt from the description of participles from the resource of Wikipedia. Listen carefully. Participles are often used to form certain grammatical tenses or grammatical aspects. The two types of participle in modern English are termed present participle and past participle. The traditional terms are misleading because the participles do not necessarily correspond to the tense. The present participle is often associated with the progressive, continuous aspect, while the past participle is linked with the perfect aspect or passive voice. Now, I'm not going to go on and read more. Are you thoroughly confused yet? Unless you are an English teacher or steeped in grammatical uh, details, this means almost nothing to you. What does mean something to you if in the writing, the words, the phrases, the tenses, and so on line up to communicate what either you or someone else is trying to say in other words it's the application it's not understanding present and past participles that's the issue it's understanding the implication of the present and past participles which we can learn in most respects from practice we do exactly the same thing with our biblical communications. We get so caught up with, shall we say, technocratic biblical uh, lingo that we miss the real issue. We parse the particles, or uh, the uh, participles. We parse them. We're continually arguing about this, that, or the other, and missing the real point. This is what happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were always arguing about what this was and that was and the law and this, that, or the other, and Jesus said, you don't get it. You still don't get it. You've heard it say of old times, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. What is he saying? He's saying, look, when it says thou shalt not commit adultery, it's not just talking about a specific act. It's talking about everything that surrounds that. In other words, your heart. The heart of the matter is always the heart. So let's talk about the term, the favorite term, born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you shall be born again. You have to be born again. Nicodemus says, hey, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I can enter back into my mother's womb and somehow get reborn? Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to put it in vernacular terms so that we can understand it. Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. I'm talking about your spirit, Nicodemus. I'm talking about the fact that we were born in sin, in sin did our mothers conceive us, and that all needs to change. Our spirit must come alive again. So what term did he use? Born again. So we turned the term born again into a virtual uh, almost an idolic phrase, idolatrous phrase to worship the phrase rather than what the phrase was intended to mean. The phrase was intended to mean you need a radical life change, Nicodemus. From the inside out. Don't you understand that Jesus said as a leader of Israel? The emphasis was not on the specific words, it was on the meaning or implication of what the words were intended to communicate. But we don't get it. We still don't get it because, in many respects, we're stiff necked. We just see Seriously, we talk about how Israel is blind to this day, partially blinded, can't see the gospel. Well, we as Gentile Christians are partially blinded. We still don't get it. We don't really get the heart of what Jesus was trying to say or what he was saying from his viewpoint. How about the passage that says, there is none that does good, no, not one. That's what the Bible says. In fact, it says it in at least three places. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3. There is none that does good, no, not one. Well, then what do you make of Colossians 1.10, where it says that you must be fruitful in every good work? When it says there's none that does good, no, not one, It doesn't mean that there is none that does any good. What it's talking about is the condition of our hearts that our goodness, our virtue, our goodness is not sufficient to qualify us for absolute purity and holiness before a holy God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you can't do anything good. Because we're required to do something good. uh, James, the brother of Jesus, said, Look, you may say that you have faith. But I say, if your faith is not accompanied by your works, good works, your faith is phony. It's not real. Because your life weighs your works, your life weighs what you do, your behavior or attitudes have to line up with what you say you believe. Otherwise, your faith is dead, meaningless. It's a theory. It's a theological theory, but it ain't real. Now, how about Psalm six? This is a baffling one. The the scripture says, I have called you gods. I have called you gods. Jesus even repeated that phrase in arguing with the uh, religious leaders of his day who called him a blasphemer because he claimed to be the son of God. Jesus said, doesn't your scripture tell you, I have called you gods, but you shall die like men? What does that scripture mean? Does it mean that... God is really looking at you and me as human beings as actual gods the way we think of it? I don't think so. What it's saying is, look, you are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. You should conduct yourself accordingly, but you're going to die like men. Or how about the words of Isaiah chapter 40? Wonderful words talking about the coming of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, who says, Every valley shall be exalted, the mountains and hills shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight. What does that mean? Does it mean exactly what the words say, or is there something else? that is being implied implicit in those words that the writer understood but maybe you don't maybe i don't but i think i do let me tell you what i think those words mean jesus was to come as a reigning king john the baptist was to be the forerunner to introduce him to prepare the way of the lord so what did people do in those times, or even our time, when they were going to prepare for the coming of a king or somebody of great uh, honor and statue? Here's what they would do. They would smooth out the pathway. They would get rid of all the rocks. They would smooth out the way so that there would be nothing to disrupt the pageantry of this king, or general whoever it was that was going to come through town the mountains and hills would be made low the valleys would be lifted up the rough places would be made straight that's what he was saying not that all the hills and mountains are going to be crashed down and all the valleys are going to be lifted up so that there's no topography anymore you see our problem we'll be right
1: back There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, Prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org.
0: Soundbite Broadcasting, Soundbite Christianity. Have you noticed that on this program for 26 and a half years, we have never, ever done Soundbite Broadcasting? Have you noticed that we use uh, speak of the same subject every day? There's a reason for that. There is a reason. Have you noticed how, whether it's on television or radio, the talk show hosts or the news people or whatever, they're always breaking things down into three to six-minute segments. Why do they do that? There are two reasons for that. Number one, to keep your attention because they don't think you're, you're qualified to pay attention. Number two, because they don't want to get so deeply into a subject that people will criticize them. Those are the two main reasons. The same thing happens in Christian broadcasting, particularly when it comes to issues. I remember about 15 years ago, uh, I was asked to speak at an event for one of the largest Christian ministries in the country, actually in the world. And, uh, After speaking, or perhaps it was on the way to the speaking engagement, I was in the vehicle with the speaker. That that is the the renowned speaker. And was told, concerning our radio program, don't do an hours program. Don't even do a half hour program. Just do a 15 minute program. And here is the reason. Two reasons. One, if you keep it short, you don't get bogged down with people making arguments and so on. The second, just use your program to market your books. That's really all it's for, anyway. It's not about really reasoning with the people, it's really for marketing your books. That's what I was told. Did I follow that example? No. Because that's part of our problem. Our problem is sound bite Christianity. We say just enough to try to lead the people to believe that we're really substantially dealing with the truth, when in fact, we're not willing to do that at all. We have ulterior motives. Why do you think it is that many a pastor will not deal with some of the most difficult and profound subjects from the pulpit? Same reasons. Now, let's talk about some of the problems with biblical understanding. And in order to do that, I want to share an email that I received yesterday from one of our longtime listeners. Now, let me just indicate to you, I receive a variety of different emails. Most of them are very respectful, very sincere, and obviously sincere. Every once in a while we get a snarky email that is very obvious from what the person wrote that they either are one of these people that likes to parse the participles and argue, or they're walking in unbelievable spiritual pride, or they just, I don't know, maybe they don't have enough uh not something else to do in their life but they're just out there to attack there are a lot of people like that that's the reason friends why we discontinued the ability on our website to allow people to provide comments you would not believe the kind of things that came through from so-called professing christians So. Here is an email that came through the other day from a longtime listener, and the person says, over the years, I have enjoyed your program. I like your bold, tell-it-like-it-is style. I was listening to your program on the radio. I live near where you live. I was especially interested because I had just given a teaching regarding faith. So was talking about our program concerning faith and belief and f- uh, fatalism and so on. said, I must say I was shocked to hear one of your statements. God doesn't want us to believe in him. He wants us to believe him. This clearly, says the writer, contradicts scripture. Perhaps the greatest verse in all the Bible is John 3.16, he said. I'm sure you have it memorized. Tell us. It tells the exact opposite of what you told your listeners yesterday. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I would have to listen to your program again to note how many times you made that statement. I want to say at least twice, but I know for sure once. I just so happened to be in a men's Bible study. And we were in 2 John this week, where the Apostle John is warning his readers of false teachers. In the past, I didn't perceive you to be a false teacher, but after yesterday's program, I have my doubts. I would think you would want to clear this up immediately. So, I understand where this person is coming from. So, I took him at face value, that his intentions were good. And here was my response. Thanks for your feedback. I in no way have repudiated John 3.16. The reality of the entire thrust of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is not that we should believe that God exists or that Jesus exists, but rather that our alleged belief goes beyond cognitive assent to religious facts, but rather fully embraces the implication of those facts for our lives. This is the largely unrecognized difference between a Greco-Roman view of the word belief as compared with the Hebraic view of what it means to believe. Failure to understand this has led to many false assurances of faith. In fact, the word unbelief is not failure to assent to religious facts, but rather the unwillingness to conform one's life to what they say they believe. I have thought that I made this point of difference clear when I made the statement you reference, and I will attempt to make this point clear on the air. So I've read that statement and the response on the air. Let me go further. When the Bible says, as John 3.16 quotes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, that whoever believes in him should not perish. You see, when we read those words, when the average American reads those words, or anybody from Europe reads those words, here's how we understand it generally. Whoever believes in him, in other words, whoever believes that Jesus Uh, was the Son of God and came to earth to save people from their sins. Whoever believes that shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's not what the word believe in means for the Hebrew, for those who were Hebrews who wrote it even though they wrote it in Greek or Aramaic. Because for the Hebrew, you remember, all the apostles were Hebrews. Jesus was a Hebrew. The apostle Paul was a Hebrew. They went first to the Jews all over the world, not to Gentiles. You have to understand this. And if we don't, we misinterpret what they're saying. To believe in something from the Hebraic viewpoint means to hang your life on it and conform it accordingly. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, was talking about when he said, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. This is what he was talking about. The idea that you can somehow cognitive believe something and that's going to be sufficient, doesn't even touch the heart. And the heart of the matter is the heart, my friends. This is one of the reasons why our country is in the desperate, lawless problem that it's in. Because we have taught people for two or three generations or more that all you have to do is make a bland confession of so-called faith, in other words, allege that uh, Jesus is the Son of God, or so on, and you're saved, and that's it. No! That's not what salvation is about. Salvation is about a radical life change. When the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 12, talks about not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, he's talking about a real transformation. He's talking about what Jesus really meant when he talked about being born again. It wasn't the words born again. It was what he meant by the words born again. It changes everything. When the Bible says that uh, in the book of uh, Acts, I believe it is, where it says uh, that you should uh, confess the Lord Jesus, actually it's in the book of Romans, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So is it just enough to confess? No. The confession has to come not as a mechanical exercise of your lips. Words are cheap, my friends. It has to come from the heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the real mouth speaks. We need to get these things correct, because there are an awful lot of people wandering around there thinking they're saved when in fact they have never been converted.
1: But the same can be found right now. Go to SaveUs.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's SaveUs.org. Click Sell Church.
0: Soundbite Christianity, parsing individual phrases or words to our own destruction, how proof text theology perverts actual truth. So many things. We could talk about this for hours because there are so many ways that we need to deal with this issue in order to really grasp the heart of what God is trying to communicate, what Jesus was communicated, what the apostles were communicated to God's people. Have you noticed how in our day and age, the actual perversion of words and their meaning has become, what should we say, the action de jour. Every day, words and their meanings are being changed. Why? To say what we think, what, what people want them to mean in order to achieve a secondary agenda? That's often the case or to make it easier for us to achieve something that otherwise would have been much more difficult. We have a lot of problems with biblical understanding. We really do. What is to be taken literally, or figuratively, or metaphorically? I believe that the Bible is to be taken literally. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that every single word is to be taken literally. We have to discern and understand what was being said, why it was being said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so you should be saved and your house. What does that mean? From a Greco Roman perspective, it means well, you believe that Jesus existed that he was the Son of God. Well, Satan believes that, friends. Don't you get it? Satan believes those things. That doesn't change anything. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means to accept who he was, what he came to do, everything that he said, and conform your life to it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. To believe is a very, very big deal. It not, does not mean to give cognitive assent to some phrase or simple words. It means to change your life, to have your life completely changed. That's why the Apostle Paul talks about us being a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Which brings us to the understanding of another phrase where Jesus said that no man can pluck you out of the father's hand it's true but it's not true the way most people apply it it is true but it's not true the way most people apply it most people apply it meaning that there is absolutely no way that you can fall away from a position that you originally took in your so-called belief system If you really believe that, you would have to nullify all the other passages of Scripture that say just the opposite. Obviously, that's not what Jesus meant. What he meant was the only agency that can actually cause you to fall away or be plucked from the Father's hand is you. You're the only one. Nobody else can do it. Like the song said of yesteryear, you got to walk this lonesome valley. you got to walk it by yourself. Nobody else can walk it for you. you got to walk it by yourself. Yes, in a sense you do. Yes, you have brothers and sisters in Christ that will walk with you, but you can pull yourself away from them just as you can pull yourself away from the Lord. And if you do that persistently, you are jeopardizing your relationship with the Father and with Christ himself. You might not want to hear that because you followed the interpretive understanding of other men that chose to interpret it differently. So you're going to have to make a choice. What was God really meaning? What was Jesus really trying to say? What was he saying? Look, nobody can take you out of your relationship with the Lord but you. Nobody, not even the Antichrist. But people will say, but I had to, I had to accept the mark of the beast. Don't you realize I wouldn't have been able to get food? Don't you realize that I wouldn't have been able to get my kids in school? Don't you real? You get the point. This is going to have tremendous meaning friends in the days and months to come. Tremendous meaning. Because if you really believe that nobody, even you, can remove yourself from the Father's will, then you have to also conclude that Revelation chapter 14, that says if you receive the mark of the beast, you will forever be consigned to eternal damnation. You have to believe that that isn't true. Make up your mind. You see, we have real problems with biblical understanding, and we want to believe what we want to believe, right? That's the flesh. The flesh wants to believe what it wants to believe. Then we have another problem with so-called context versus pretext. Everybody in his brother wants to say, we have to understand the context. Well, true. What is the context? The context is not just... The context is not just the particular words in the verses immediately preceding and following. The context is not just in that chapter that you're reading. The context is not just in that particular book that you're studying. The context is the whole word of God from Genesis 1 on through Revelation 22. That's the context. We need to understand that. And if you do not willingly and understand that you must study to prepare yourself, to present yourself holy and unblameable before God, because without holiness no man will see the Lord, that verse is also rendered meaningless if you don't believe that you can fall away. So many passages are rendered meaningless. In other words, that God himself became a liar by your interpretation of what Jesus said concerning no man can take you out of the Father's hand. Many passages are quoted as a pretext for what I want to do. For instance, people will emphasize the love of God. God is love. True. God is love. What does that mean? That's what we need to be asking. What does that mean? Because God says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So what God declares as evil or sinful must be hated. So you can't just say God is love. And therefore, from that, extrapolate a whole new theology of love without the rest of the story. So we have proof texting versus understanding. Many people will quote certain passages. For instance, uh, well, just about any kind of passage, they'll quote a passage. See, isn't that what it says? See, that's what it says right there. Yes. But here's what it says in all these other places. Now, let's come together and let's reason together. No, there's no place for reasoning with those kind of people. They're not interested in reasoning. They're interested in proof texting to prove a particular preconceived notion that they've arrived at, whether you call it a theological position or whatever. Friends, God is not about us becoming theologians per se. Yes, we should understand God. But the Apostle Paul put it this way. It wasn't about the knowledge about God that he was interested in. It was the knowledge of God. That's a different kind of knowledge. That's not an informational knowledge. That's a relational knowledge. How about book studies versus Bible studies? Most evangelical Christians today do not study the Bible. What they do is study books, not even the books of the Bible. They study books. They call them book studies. But what are those book studies doing? They're orienting your mind and heart to the thinking, theology, interpretations of the person who wrote it. You say, well, isn't that what happens when people read your books? Absolutely. That's why. I don't want you to believe what I say. I'm attempting in the best way I can to interpret what the Lord is saying and its implication for us. Not to parse theological truths, but to actually apply the Word of God so it makes a difference in our lives. You do your own research. You see like a Berean to see if those things are true. But you better do it with an honest heart and not parsing Calvinism or Arminianism or Matthew Henryism or Martin Lutherism or Ellen Whiteism or your favorite pastorism. See, that's where we get in trouble. If you want to do a book study, study the Bible. If you want to do a book study, don't just study the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans or the book of John. You're not going to get a complete picture there. you just not. Content versus intent. This is a big one. We need to understand what Jesus was saying, what the Paul, Paul was saying, what the The apostles were saying, when they said what they said, when the prophets said what they said, Isaiah used a phrase, lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions. Is he saying your voice is a trumpet? No. It's a metaphor. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. But if you lift up your voice like a trumpet, it's going to have a trumpet sound. In other words, it's going to have a different kind of a sound than a violin or, a, or a, 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 a trombone. It's going to have a piercing, resounding sound. Very few, very few people today lift up their voice like a trumpet. Very few. They don't want to because it draws too much attention and they're going to get criticized for it. Then we have viewpoints, and interpretations, and revelations. And we reinterpret what God says through the lens of our favorite theologians. We've got to be careful about that. We have to understand the motivation of our own hearts, why we would interpret something the way we do. That's called integrity. Integrity. God is desiring integrity of mind, heart, and purpose. That's the only way we can understand the Bible for all it's worth, as one fellow has often said. So do I really want to understand and embrace God's viewpoint? Are you sure? Let's not parse participles anymore. Let's put away this soundbite Christianity, the proof-texting theology that perverts the truth. Let's seek the truth with a whole heart. Jesus is coming soon, friends, and the time for that kind of chicanery in the name of Christ is over. Thanks for joining us. Become a partner. Send your gifts by faith to Save America Ministries. The O-Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Our website, saveus.org. Get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints. Talks about a lot of things where we're deceived because of the way we look at the Bible.